This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Neil Douglas Klotz about his latest book, Revelations of the Aramaic Jesus, The Hidden Teachings on Life and Death, published by Hampton Roads. Neil Douglas Klotz, Ph.D., is a renowned writer in the fields of Middle Eastern spirituality and the translation and interpretation of the ancient Semitic languages of Hebrew, Aramaic, and Arabic. He was for many years co-chair of the Mysticism Group of the American Academy of Religion. He currently lives in Scotland. A frequent speaker and workshop leader, he is the author of several books. His books on the Aramaic spirituality of Jesus include Prayers of the Cosmos, the Hidden Gospel, Original Meditation, the Aramaic Jesus and the Spirituality of Creation, and Blessings of the Cosmos. His books on a comparative view of native Middle Eastern spirituality include Desert Wisdom, a Nomad's Guide to Life's Big Questions, and The Tent of Abraham, with Rabbi Arthur Wasco and Sister Joan Chittiser. His books on Sufi spirituality include The Sufi Book of Life, 99 Pathways of the Heart for the Modern Dervish, and A Little Book of Sufi Stories. His biographical collections of the works of his Sufi teachers include Sufi Vision and Initiation, Samuel L. Lewis, and Illuminating the Shadow, Moinadine Jablonski. He has also written a mystery novel set in the first century CE Holy Land entitled A Murder at Armageddon. He also recently edited five little books published by Hampton Rhodes, four devoted to a new selection of the work of Lebanese-American writer, poet, and painter Khalil Gibran, and one dedicated to Wild Wisdom, a collection of early ecological writers and mystics. Neil Douglas Klotz, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you, friends. It's great to be back. It's great to have you back, and it's great to have you back for the occasion of discussing your latest book, The Revelations of the Aramaic Jesus, because um, it's, uh, I, I have the feeling that the book is something of a capstone on a uh, decades-long project. Um, it pulls together all kinds of stuff that um, weaves nicely in the book, into a, a very um, uh, complete whole. So, um, so thank you for the, for the occasion uh, to get to uh, uh, re-engage with the work. I read Prayers of the Cosmos oh so many years ago, and and this is clearly a, a vast expansion and deepening of that of that direction yeah. of work. That's yeah. That I think that's right. I mean, Prayers of the Cosmos came out thirty plus years ago, and I was really proceeding sort of, if you could say, piecemeal when I began all this, almost forty years ago, trying to take sort of islands, if you will, of meaning that are within the Gospels and looking at how different those are. 
between the usual translations or even the usual understanding and also, you know, what the Aramaic was revealing in it, you could say in a more broad or more expansive or a deeper sense. And, and that then, you know, is proceeding sort of step by step. So, you know, in the, in the second book, I was trying to again deal with little pockets of meaning. What are the main words that uh, Jesus uses in the Gospels? And what are their meanings, their alternate meanings in the, in the Aramaic, in the Syriac Aramaic that Aramaic Christians use? So, you know, this, this led me down a real rabbit hole, I'll just say, and we can go into that also as well, about, you mm -hmm. know, how to how to join up these different islands of meaning, if you will. And they're not just meaning, you could say, in an abstract uh, sense, but meaning actually in an experiential sense. Uh, what did all of this reveal about Jesus's actual, we would now call it today, his spirituality, um, which is a word that wouldn't really have been around at that time, because every, everything was understood in a more experiential way than it is now. So, well, this, so th this new book is really about that, and there's there's a lot of you could say this there's a whole cosmology, if you will, and also a whole way of looking at life that that joins together all of my previous work. That's that's right, and and um, I'm glad you brought up the the word cosmology, although it also comes through in. in other parts of what you just had to say, which is which is that you create a more convincing context, I think, for what Jesus was up to than uh, than anything I've read before. I mean, I've read a lot a lot of stuff on this um, sure. topic, and and we can talk talk about the various aspects as we go. But but I think um, it's uh, it's a very skillful interweaving of I guess these pockets of meaning, as as you put it uh, earlier. And 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 that has a has an effect that um, a, a more I don't know the word sectarian came into my mind. It isn't the right word, but but a narrow the narrower perspectives that I've read in in previous books, some of which I you know I I, I continue to uh, be grateful for um, their perspectives. And nevertheless, um, it's coherent it, the the coherency of what you're saying in this book is striking and even remarkable. Yeah, I think that was the thing I discovered over these many years is that it's not just about the whole issue that words meant something different then, which is where people usually begin. Right. Okay, yeah, so the word that's usually, usually translated spirit, that really means breath, you know, and the, okay, well, that's, that's different. But it's really about a, a very different way of looking at life that the ancient peoples had. Uh, and this is not just limited to what we would call Semitic language speakers, that is speakers of ancient Hebrew or Aramaic, or even up till classical Arabic, 600 years later, the Arabic, what's called classical Arabic, the Arabic in which the Quran was spoken through Muhammad. But even at the, even over this long period of time and even before, uh, humans had a different relationship to reality, to the world around them, to nature, to each other. And it's so different uh, that that is very, very difficult for scholars, much less lay people, 
uh, well, I shouldn't say lay people often get their heads around it much easier than scholars. Yeah. It's difficult for scholars to get their heads around it because they've got so much invested in these in these prior, uh, you could say, translations and interpretations, whether they're secular or theological or whatever. So it's that, that was an that that was a journey for me. So, so why don't we go into that a little bit as a kind of a, a way of laying the foundation for the revelations at. How would you say, you know, what what is that mindset that's uh, different? And I guess the part partly the question I have is: is it simply a uh, a sort of pre modern versus modern differentiation, or is there even something unique about the placement of the peoples in the uh, um, uh, Southwest Asian area that uh, is unique from, say, people in India or people in other regions at that time? Um, I would I would say that there are elements in common, and there are also unique elements. As I point out in the book, the Semitic uh, language languages uh, come out of a nomadic context where peoples were always moving. Now, this was not uniquely true in South uh, West Asia. Certainly, we still find small bands of nomadic people today in Africa, for instance, but. Uh, it did develop these languages in a very profound way that isn't recognized, I think, even by uh, scholars of Hebrew or Arabic or even, you know, scholars of, of Syriac Aramaic. The, the difference is really that it was a different, and you have to take a breath for this before I say this, <laughs> it was really a different type of human self, a different individuality, mm-hmm. a different I. That is an individualness. It was very, very different. And so we can't at this date, without going through a lot of inner, you could say, revolution or revelation, uh, go back to those times until we begin to also feel with what is going on at that time. And when I say a different view of the human self, I mean that humans were much more embedded in their in their surroundings. Mm-hmm. They were interwoven in a way that people only talk about today as a possible spiritual experience, <coughs> say from meditation. Well, I find it I felt at one with everything. Or I sat in nature and I felt, you know, I'm part of that tree or I'm part of this. Yes, we have glimpses of that. Why? Not because they're special states, but because they were the norm for humanity for hundreds of thousands of years. Such that when I, if I can give you, for instance, it in story form, as an ancient human being, when I would look at a tree, I wouldn't just see, you could say, the, the, the tree with its branches or even with its roots. Uh, I wouldn't, and I certainly wouldn't see a piece of lumber or a potential table. Uh, I would see a living being and also around that tree, you could say as though around that tree, a, an essence, what, what later traditions called, uh, nature spirits or you know, and different traditions have different names for these different parts of the world, but they're basically about the human view of nature as having a, you know, a livingness. Now, what's different really about that is that humans at that time 
and this is also takes uh, one to, <laughs> to take a breath before I say this. It's as though humans were wearing their their subconscious on the outside. It's as though human beings were wearing their subconscious on mm. the outside. What we now call our subconscious, our so-called inner life, as a separate self, as my inner life, was not developed at that point. It was not evolved. Uh, and I say evolved rather than devolved because I believe that the evolution of human consciousness is inevitable. But it, it was just so different that it was like, it's like what the Australian Aboriginals talk about. It was a dream time. Reality around them was just as living as the, you know, it was the same reality as the reality within them. It, you know, and so these images that we see, for instance, in Australian Aboriginal art, uh, which are recreated today by them, uh, this is again one people's version of how nature was actually viewed uh, around them. This is hard to get our heads around today yeah. in the West because we're looking back post enlightenment, post industrial revolution. Um, it's all become about instrumentalism and I thou. You know, there was a, this I thou was not separate at that time. A transcendent, so called transcendent and imminent were not concepts that people would have understood. Uh, dualistic and non-dualistic were things people would not have understood at the time. These are all things, abstract notions we've reinvented to try to get us somehow we feel like we're not really where we should be as humanity. We need to somehow reclaim something. And so we try all sorts of things to do this. Uh, spiritual practice being chief among them in some ways. And, uh, you know, and various types, various flavors of that. It's really uh, an interesting uh, image of the subconscious being on the outside and not on the inside. I, I, uh, um, I, I suspect that's something I will be uh, contemplating for a while because I like I like um, I like that metaphor, and um, and you di you dive into this in in the first chapters of Revelations of the Aramaic Jesus. Um, so there's a, a, one other point I, I want I want to make in what you just in what you just said, which is sure. that uh, yesterday we were uh, uh, Stuart and I are part of a uh, uh, a weekly Zoom meeting from with uh, several people from around the world, mostly other fourth way practitioners, but also a, mm -hmm. a prominent uh, Sufi uh, participant, and we were talking about this book because, of course, we were. Uh, preparing for our conversations with you to, conversation with you today and and one of the uh, fourth way fellows as we were discussing this was saying well if this guy had a had a revelation i don't think i don't know if that was the yeah, that was exact, the word i think that was the word he, well, that yeah, he actually yeah. used yeah. then there might be, then then that could be quite authentic and you in in what you were just saying neil was uh, um uh, spoke about that word and about how that arises for, I assumed it was for you in this project. Maybe you could just touch on that briefly before we go ahead with the meat of the book. Yeah, well, no, that's, that is actually, that's absolutely true. That in addition to, <laughs> you could say, loading in psychology, linguistics, um, 
anthropology and everything else, all of these ologies are things also that humans have have made up in the last, I mean, the words for them are things mm -hmm. that people have made up in the last um, five centuries or so. You know, one one needs to have had or to be willing to have some sort of experience, some deeper spiritual experience. Uh, one has to see that Jesus's way of prayer is uh, not dualistic at all, actually, from his point of view. Interesting as though that may be. Um, and, and I had these experiences very deeply. I had some inklings of this even in childhood, I have to say. Although I was raised in a quite a conservative uh, Protestant Christian family, my parents were really more interested, as I think I mentioned last time we got together, they were more interested in, you know, Rachel Carson and organic gardening and holistic health, chiropractic. My father was a chiropractor and mm -hmm. Edgar Casey. So there was an openness to, you could say, for want of a better word, messages from the other side. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm using that term sort of loosely and maybe too crudely. And so, you know, when we, although we went to Lutheran uh, schools, elementary schools, and where they drilled into us Luther's small catechism, and we had to memorize large parts of the King James Bible and then get up and recite them in church, um, verbatim, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so these things... These had, things had their, you know, this inner outer split, and this is where I was in my life. This inner outer split was sort of like only bridged in my dream life or when I had sort of visions of light or Jesus or things, things like that, which I didn't tell anyone about because people would have thought I was too crazy. So um, long story short, uh, when I came to the, to the uh, Sufis, uh, the Western Sufis, and I was put in charge of editing the diaries of Samuel Lewis, who began the Dances of Universal Peace. He wrote in his diaries that he wanted to do two things before he died. And one was to start this method of circle dance, which would be a way of, as he called it, peace through the arts, or eating, dancing, and praying with people, and bring people together, and give them a more profound mystical experience. And he also wanted to learn to pray the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic. <laughs> and he had done the first, but not the second. And I was very open at the time when I was reading his diaries and tried to internalize them. I was, I had editing skills by that time. I had been a investigative reporter in New York and knew how to do things in the publishing world, if you could say, and had developed quite good skills. So I was put in charge of all this, but I was also sort of open to what was going on and, you know, on, on my inner life and, and I had just like a big flash of light when I ran into this passage in his diaries. And so I began, I looked for seed. Who, who knew anything about this Aramaic? Who knew about this stuff? I mean, you know, who can help me? What's Aramaic? And so I was helped by a person you will know uh, of blessed memory, Rabbi Zalman Schachter, hmm. uh, who knew Sam uh, briefly. And he gave me, he said, okay, well, this is probably what it is. And he gave me a, a transliteration that is a rendering into English characters of the approximate Aramaic words. Uh, and again, you can only approximate the sounds in English characters, you understand. Mm -hmm. But just using that, 
and the little bit that I had learned about classical Arabic and how Semitic languages generally are pronounced, just generally, I began to chant some of the prayer uh, on my own, again, not telling anyone, <laughs> because the Sufis are not particularly partial to Jesus, <laughs> no, nor are most people in other spiritual groups, which for reasons we can talk about, uh, mostly to do with their upbringing. And so I began to chant this, and then on a longer retreat, I began to have these much deeper spiritual experiences, which I can, you know, many years later, 20 plus, 30 plus years later, almost 40, you know, my body began to move as though without my willingness um, in movements that I had not experienced before. And these, I began hearing these melodies uh, that I began to chant. And then I asked, well, is this total delusion or what's going on? And, you know, the voice says, no, this is not just for you. You know, chant this, share this with people. And you think, oh, my God, am I really, I'm really going around the bend now. So I just said, well, what, you know, I'll just try. So I, I began and, and that was really, you could say, the impetus later to learn Aramaic properly, as well as the encouragement of Matthew Fox, who's, who I can mention later, but. Well, thank you. That's, uh, that, that's really interesting. Do you want to uh, guide the, uh, well, yeah, I, I, well, into well, the book? One, one of the points I think is, I think is striking about the book is that besides looking at the words of Jesus in Aramaic and also bringing considerable flexibility and sort of new, new breath in terms of the translation, you also, um, pepper the book with contemplations and the contemplations aren't just reciting the words they're intoning the words and they involve body movements and I was struck by that because when we think about revelation and I think about it in a, maybe in a fourth way sense it's like bringing all of the centers together and trying to align the self in a larger context with uh, the deeper meaning that's uh, uh, pointed to in the, in, in the, uh, uh, the pieces of, of the, the translation. So I, I guess I'm, I'm interested and just want to showcase that the, the book isn't a scholarly translation of, of uh, uh, Syriac Aramaic. It's a, it's a, it's more of a, uh, a complete practice or, and I, and I guess I, the other thing I would say about that is that some of the practices are were interesting to me because they resonated in form and structure in some of the practices that I see in some in certain uh, Western Hermetic traditions where there's an engagement of the imagination. There's like trying to imagine for ourselves the vividness or the the realness of. Uh, our let's say our smaller self and our larger self connected and the heart being uh expanding out and mediating this kind of uh, uh connection in a way that uh i think is transformational for someone who actually you know allows themselves to deepen in this practice so i guess i'd like you to speak a little bit about that aspect of the book where how the contemplations fit in with the text and the descriptions of the translations? Well, I've tried to do this in all my books, really, because I've been writing books for however long I've been writing them, basically to invite people to have an experience. 
Uh, I mean, that's putting it just briefly and as clearly as I can. It's always been this way. And so these, whether you call them contemplations or body prayers or whatever you want to call them, meditations, I mean, all these would have been the same word for Jesus in Aramaic, really. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's essential to internalize, you could say, as you were describing, internalize the words, let them dissolve into one, like let them be digested, and then see what comes back. I mean, in Peter Kingsley's books, he mentions this too, as being a feature, a feature of the early pre-Socratic pre tradition, that one would, uh, the Empedocles and Parmenides, that they recommend that you take these words deeply into your belly and, and then sort of digest them and let them, if you will, explode there into some experience. Otherwise, the words are, you know, they're just abstract, uh, you could say abstract meanings. Uh, Aramaic and the Semitic languages have the benefit also that, th that they have a sound resonance within the body in certain places in the body. And this is, you know, this has been written about by others, whether it's Hebrew, again, Syri well, Hebrew, Aramaic, Arabic, there was a way of intoning the words such that they put one, you could say, more in contact with a bigger breath. Jesus would call it a bigger ruha in Aramaic. And that ruha is both inner and outer. And it, it approaches that, that bigger sense of reality that he keeps pointing towards. Yeah, and I think that that's, as we were talking earlier about a different mindset for uh, the peoples of that time, that our modern mindset is that experience is really like a, a mental event. And so I read a book, I, ex I expect to get an idea. And that's my that's my experience. Uh, you're pointing to something much, much different. And again, it's not something that just a, a simple read will capture, it, it becomes a practice. It becomes a practice. And, and people, even if they've read my previous books, are going to have to go through the book a little bit more slowly. Um, in fact, someone coming new to it without having read anything, uh, <laughs> may get more from it in some ways, because people fixate. When you write a book, people fixate on certain things which are important to them at the time. And so memory, in some senses, although it can be helpful, tends to keep us a little bit trapped in the past in terms of these types of experiences, which is about, yeah, an ever-changing sense of reality, really. You mentioned the imaginal before. Uh, this is... This was all over the, you could say, Yeshua's practices at that time. Not imagination in that sense, but imaginal in the sense that, let's say, Henry Corbin or Sir Wardy talks about, or some of these people, in that at this point in the evolution of our human self, human consciousness, it's our job, so to speak, or you could say it's indicated <laughs> that we have to re, we have to put our our force of will, our force of passion, what Jesus would call sebyanach, or seba, into, you could say, the way we see the world. How are we going to use this isolated, separated, existentialist, um, depressed self? Uh, well, we're going to use it by putting our heart into something and imagining, you could say, that the future is not already created. It's not already determined. And that 
we have we each of us have the possibility of when we when we see a tree we can imagine something different we can see its whole life cycle as as Goethe talks about in his books on nature i mean all of this is other people have been writing about this for a long time and uh, rudolf steiner talks a lot about it too i mean i'm throwing out a lot of names here for people but i mean the, these thing people have been pointing to this in right. a prophetic way for the better part of well really the last couple of centuries because they saw the way human human individuality was going uh, which was not in a great direction it was going into more utilitarian a more selfish way now today we'd call it a selfie way you know uh, <laughs> all of these things were not gonna were not gonna turn out well for us so after some has to be some turning well, uh, uh, for what it's worth, I'll describe the way that I, and I think uh, Stuart as well, um, approach the reading of this book, which is, you know, we we have a long, you know, in my case, over 40 years of uh, cultivation of a fourth way practice. And, and, and one of the things about uh, fourth way is it, it, I think, was intended in some ways by Gurdjieff to fit into the mindset of Western humanity in the early 20th century when he was doing his, his, uh, if you will, translations. And, um, uh, and that has created a certain way that the, that Gurdjieff was received, which has pluses and minuses. But one of the things that, uh, you were just talking about imagination and this is why it came up for me. Uh, uh, imagination is often interpreted as a, as a dirty word in the fourth way. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we've, I think, both come to see, Stuart and I, is that, uh, in fact, imaginal practices along the lines you were just describing um, are incredibly important. And I, and I suspect that Gurdjieff, I mean, look, he wrote this 1200 page science fiction novel, right? <laughs> It was, it was, um, uh, I mean, it's much more than a novel, uh, but, um, but that's what it also is, right? And, um, so Stuart and I have been exploring Native American practices, African, uh, elemental divination practices, uh, et cetera. And I have, um, and that's the context within which we, we came to this book. A, a particular and unique uh, path, yeah. I suppose, but but nevertheless, what you were the the articulation of the perspective that Jesus and his contemporaries would have had is very rich and is very uh, involved in the same sort of perspective that we have um, brought our fourth way training to appreciate so um and i suspect this is not just true for us that other people from their own per separate perspectives and and i know you work with a lot of individuals in fact uh when when i told uh, you, you know we have a, a spiritual bookstore in in sebastopol california yes you've spoken there and um I told uh, one of our longtime customers that we were going to be having this chat with you about this book. And she just 
blew up with excitement. And, oh, <laughs> you know, I, I was, you know, I did the, the dancing with, uh, with Neil and, and, and there were, and this, it was this one time on the East Coast and the nuns and there were not Catholic nuns and priests <laughs> dancing the universes, dancing yeah. the universal peace. And she was just so excited about it. So, so, um, um, I mean, she's a very, a wonderful, excitable person, uh, and, um, uh, in the best way. Uh, and, and so, and so people are, are, are coming to your work from different perspectives. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, because I, one of the, one of the skillful things about your book, it seems to me, is that it, it can be open to people coming from many different directions to it. Yes. Well, that, that was my intent. And also, you know, as you say, I've done these things with people for many, many years in groups. So I looked around and, you know, who, okay, well, who, who is coming and who has really been helped by this? And they, they fell into, if you, for one, you know, they fell into different categories, if you will. Um, many of them fell into the category of people who were originally what I like to call Jesus phobic, uh, usually from experiences in their childhood um, of whatever, of church, of this, or family. And, and so they went as far away from this as they could get. And then they went into Buddhism or shamanism or something. And they, you know, that was really benefiting them. But they reached a certain point where they had to deal with their their, what, those childhood impressions, again, to use that expression, and up came Jesus, you know, and somehow they were led to my work, and that facilitated some sort of wholeness or them some sort of healing. And that's, that's a very important component of the people who have been benefited from this. I mean, Jung mentions this too in one of his books. I think it's his book, uh, his commentaries on, on uh, Wilhelm's Golden Flower that um, Western peoples, they're not, they're not generally raised within these Eastern traditions. So, you know, going there and, and stealing things like that without, not stealing, but he would say, going to foreign shores without dealing with your inner stuff is like pirates stealing from foreign shores. And he felt that human, uh, Western humanity would first have to come to grips uh, with its if you will, it's Christian underpinnings. Even those who are atheists have these, I've noticed. Uh, and maybe especially atheists. So, you know, you're either for Jesus or you're against him. <laughs> it, like that. And, and then, of course, there are people in, uh, as you mentioned, I've danced uh, and also taught plenty with particularly uh, Roman Catholic sisters, uh, and brothers, sisters particularly. Once I was, I was doing, uh, I think, a long series on the Beatitudes, just with a group of sisters who were in Missouri. A whole, you know, building full of them had invited me. They had listened to one of my audios. They invited me, and and I said, "Well, aren't you going to get in trouble for inviting me here?" And they said, "No, Neil. You know, you know, we're, we're just." We're just women. The church ignores us. <laughs> you know, so w whatever the Pope says, we're just continuing on with Vatican II and inviting whoever we want. 
<laughs> so, so there is this alternative, if you will, you know, non-doctrinaire, you know, spiritually interested Roman Catholics, Protestants, and of course, New Thought Churches, Unity, Church of Religious Science, uh, Science of Mind, uh, even some Unitarians, I should say, meaning no disrespect to my Unitarian friends. Um, but many of them did become interested in spirituality, although mostly in Zen. And so they're interested to hear that, you know, Jesus isn't that far from the Zen master. Uh, the Gospel of Thomas is not that different from actually the four canonical Gospels, despite what scholars say. It just depends on the way you look at it, and particularly on the translation. So... Well, throughout the book, the a theme that I saw that uh, tied together both the um, uh, Yeshua prayer, the Jesus prayer, the Lord's prayer, the Beatitudes, the the stories from the Gospels was this theme of the balancing or the turning of attention of the small self, the nefesh, to the um, the self of the capital S, the ruah. Uh, and you also described, although this wasn't as prominent, this, there were a few lines there, but it, that this was mediated by the heart. I'm wondering if you could talk about that, that, that theme, because that seemed to be that, that connection, and I think you at one point kind of call it the I-I, the Inanna, is the uh, kind of the axis around which this uh, whole teaching seems to revolve. So, so could you talk a little bit about that and how, how you, did you see that as a connecting vision throughout the, uh, the material that you were uh, translating? Yes, I think that's, that's very important. And it's why I put it toward the very beginning of the book, even before I get into specific examples of of, you know, Jesus' words, his prayer, beatitudes, things like that. So, <clears throat> and again, these words, the Aramaic words, or Hebrew or Arabic words, because they're basically the same, these words can be, the terms soul and self are used by different authors over the last hundred years differently. If you know what they're talking about, it's very clear. I believe that, that these using these two, is the clearest way to look at both the biblical, all of the biblical uh, prophetic and wisdom teachings, as well as that of Jesus, as well as that of the Quran, because basically it's the same words. Uh, and I'll describe that briefly. We have, again, a, a breath within us, a way of breathing within us and in ourselves, which is like a held breath. It's, it's breath is held within us for a certain number of years that we have bodies in time and space, the way we put it today. And these breaths sound something like this. It's a breath that's head-centered, more in the forehead, uh, in the nostrils, all up here in the head. And it tends to create an individualized, separate sense of self. This isn't the only thing that does it, but this is a, an example of it. This is, an, you could say, an artifact of it in our everyday life. So, for instance, if we get nervous, we tend to hold our breath and tighten. Uh, 
psychologists have noticed this one finds this out in therapy if one doesn't <laughs> fairly before that time so for the ancients this was the individual self breath so to speak it's um it's available to us as a conscious breath during the daytime and then we there's a breath that is always connected if you will always connected to everything around it always connected to where everything and and i come from always connected to my before and my after we can get into the sense of time later if you want but it's it's connected to it's it's the all and everything it's if you use, <laughs> if i can borrow from gurjeev sorry uh, but uh you know it's the 24 7 it's always open uh it's going on when we're dreaming when we're sleeping uh, without our needing to necessarily do anything, unless we've seriously had our breath disturbed by some, some situation in life or some health crisis or whatever. So, and this breath is, has a sound more like this. So it's like the wind, really. Uh, and so it becomes the word for wind and breath and later translated then spirit in the gospels. Uh, by people. So these two breaths are our two ways of being in life, if you will. It's one life. This is clear from the teachings of the Semitic language. It's one life, and we have two ways of being in it as this has, as this human thing has unfolded. This human thing I talk about, you know, the Garden of Eden story is all about this human thing unfolding in a more individual way, if you will. That's what the story says in Hebrew, if you read it with this, with this view, which is what I've did in another of my books. And so, although this may seem dualistic, these two ways of looking are like two eyes, two inner eyes open to inner ways of perceiving the world, one as totally connected from the all and everything, and the other from my individual sense of self. And the, we're here to sort of learn how to manage that, balance that, according to Genesis. And it is, in fact, the heart for the ancients, for the ancient Middle Eastern peoples, the Southwest Asian nomads, it is the heart, and it's true in other traditions too, the heart that sort of is able to turn us between one and the other. And when the heart gets sort of a little bit more too rigid, you know, you're going too much in one direction or the other. You're going either too much towards the individual self and its accomplishments, acquisitions, or, which is also possible, you're going too much towards the, you know, you're going like out of, out of time and space for a number of different reasons. One could be because it's too difficult to live in a body. And this was certainly true of many of Jesus's original followers. I point this out in the chapter on his healing stories in Mark, that many of them were living under a very traumatic uh, reality, not post-traumatic, present traumatic, uh, where they, this was what we now call post-traumatic stress syndrome, except they were under stress all the time, uh, under trauma all the time. And so they were always slightly out of their bodies, again, using modern terms. And so they had experiences of another world and not positive ones. 
they had negative experiences of another world. And these are what interpreted or translated in the Gospels with various words that are like the demons or these things that Jesus helps heal them of. Well, why were there so many people that had all these things in the first century, you know, in this area? Well, that's the reason, is because they were being sat on by the super rich and by the empires for hundreds of years, who were not only taxing them to death and taking away their land, but taking away their children as slaves uh, whenever they damn well felt about felt like it. And this is not just my version of the history, but this is pointed out by a number of quite decent scholars whom I mentioned in the book as well. Actually, so it's, you know, it's this, this is, this is the thing. And Jesus helps them balance their heart energy, if you will, we would call it heart energy he helps to balance this, not just the physical heart, but the, the way of, perceiving through the heart such that one can turn more easily from here and now to everywhere and all the time. Well, I, I just want to uh, underscore this last point because it's um, in my, in my readings of, of uh, early Christian times. And, and by the way, this um, uh, your description of Trauma as the as the uh, the basic experience of most of the population uh, under the Eastern Roman Empire uh, at that time is is absolutely um, confirmed by by both history and archaeology um, looking at um, the way people were li were living at the time. But but um, I was always puzzled by all the um, miracle stories, but particularly the casting forth of, of devils. Yes. And, you're, and, 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 and one of the features of Revelations of the Aramaic Jesus is precisely that you create a context for understanding what that was about that is more coherent and articulate than, than any of the other books I've read on the, on the topic. I mean, some of them touch on many of the same points, yes. but I think it, I think the, your, your, um, complete effort at contextualization of how people understood the language that they were using and how that, how that affected their experience is, um, it was quite quite uh, uh, unique, so um, I yes, think that's that's, that, that's, that's a new that's a new yeah. feature of this book. I hadn't gone that's right that very much in my other books. So that's right, and and I think and I, I think it's a real uh, it's helpful for someone like me because if you just sit down and read the King James uh, version or or other translations um, of uh, the Greek and Latin texts uh, of the Bible. That's a feature of the Gospels that that you you just either you you just contextualize it by setting it aside, yes. or you or it's just a or it's just a big puzzle. Yes, and you know the way I was raised, you know, as it says in the King James Bible, it says, "Okay, Jesus comes to this village, and he he preaches the gospel, and everybody flocks to him." So you're, you're led to presume that Jesus is going to go there and give people like a Sunday sermon. 
mm-hmm. and say, well, this is, you should believe this and you should believe that. Da, 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 da. And so they brought him all these people and he healed them from demons and on and on and on. Well, one of the things I discovered in the new book is that the word for preach in Aramaic, the word that is translated as preach in Aramaic, actually just means he came and announced himself. Like, here I am. Anybody need healing? And they brought him like, oh, you know, it's like, well, half the village comes out because they're all totally suffering liminal disorders, as as uh, psychology would call it today. So, and then he works with them. Uh, he, it's not to say he works with them just strictly in a secular sense or even a, in a somatic sense, uh, because I studied somatic psychology to get deeper into some of this earlier, earlier sense of worldview. But yes, he is working with, you could say, forces, if you will, that he was still in contact with from the unseen. And he's working also in a very embodied way with people. So it's not surprising that he's able to, to help them sort of un- unhook from this, you know, what the shamanic tradition calls, I think, in South America, the, the bad reality. Unhook from the bad reality on the other side. Hook up. Here's a better one. Here's a better one. Here's the one I'm hooked up to, which is all related to uh, Holy Wisdom or Sophia, which is is also a major theme of that book, of this book. So one of the... Uh, uh, um... I'm going to go back to the text here. Um, the uh, the thing that struck me is your <clears throat> excuse me discussion of devils, and um, and I and I think it was um, a really interesting way to look at um, uh, the way that the way that happens. So um, um, you you write today we tend to shy away from words like devil and demon. Yet yet most of us can still recognize a bad atmosphere when we enter a room for a group meeting. Writ large, we can see these as examples of mental emotional viruses that affect the world around us. We can in fact <clears throat> excuse me we can in fact see many modern channels of information and social media actively promoting such viruses or sustaining them for their own profit. And that's a really, <laughs> I think, I think that's a passage that can really resonate for a modern reader. That's Actually. one you can sit with because, um, <laughs> you, know, you know, I talk to my, uh, my Muslim friends and they say, well, you know, we're not sure we believe in jinn anymore or, or mm-hmm. this or that or the other thing. And, you know, well, we say, they contextualize it in the same way. You've mentioned many sort of liberal Christians contextualize the miracles. And I say, well, do you really understand how the Internet works? <laughs> or how the financial markets are controlled by algorithms, or who controls the algorithms, or, or what they're, you know, and he said, no, we don't, we just accept it, you know, whatever the news tells us, we, but, or whatever so we read on social media, it must be true. They, they don't, usually don't go quite that far, but some, in some cases they do. So you, you do see these things. And again, different traditions call them different things, elementals, uh, you know, which are like, what we would today call mental emotional viruses that go around and they can be spread uh, consciously by people with all these new means that we have of interconnection, which are great for the interconnection. But, you know, there's two sides to it always. Um, so you can just spread things much more easily. Well, that, I mean, that's a, uh, an interesting way you put that because, uh, 
we have greater interconnection now in terms of media and the fact that uh, obviously we're having this conversation uh, spanning yes. uh, thousands of miles <laughs> um, uh, is amazing. And uh, the early days of the Internet had this vision that it would be all good. And it's it, in a in a way we've recreated the kind of connectivity that peoples in ancient times had with their more porous relationship with nature, such that you still have the problem of not everything's good, not everything's bad, and we have to make choices. Or we have to we yeah. have to be present to the choices that are offered. Very true. I mean, we did all think that back in the eighties or whenever. I was, you know, <clears throat> it's just going to be free speech and every freedom, and it's going to change the world and great stuff. And you know, yeah, it's got potentials. It still has potentials, but again, it's a it's a two edged sword. And yeah. uh, you know, so it's it it does go both ways. And also interesting to note that although we're more inter interconnected amongst humans using technology, we're less connected on overall with nature. We approach nature much more as an object. I mean, and of course, that's what people are rebelling against today uh, in many, uh, you know, in uh, ecological movements or climate crisis and, uh, you know, all this stuff. So th there's, there's an inner feeling that that's, that's just wrong. Yeah. And it's, it's not only wrong the way we're polluting nature and creating a carbon and all these things. It's just wrong the way uh, we, we feel connected to nature. The yeah. way, we, way we use nature, the way we consider it an object, rather another, than another subject. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, as Rob was touching earlier, when um, I think the rising or the, the, greater, the greater understandings of many indigenous traditions still retain a lot of the elements of this sense of connectivity, this yes. person, this personal connection to nature. And it's interesting because, uh, yes, even the ecological movement, uh, the, um, uh, the climate movement that recognizes some of the instrumental effects of the way that we treat na nature are moving in the right direction. They're not always, uh, situated in a, uh, dynamic, personal relationship with nature in the way that uh, you, you're pointing to in um, your book and, and as we see indigenous uh, uh, traditions point to. So you use the example of a tree, you know, the, it's, it's an interesting thing in, as a practice, if you, you can create a relationship with a tree, you can put into practice what you were saying, but, but it's something that we have to intentionally do. We have to change the habit of the way that we are conditioned to yes. see that tree. Yes. And that requires repetition over an extended period of time in, in body, in, in heart, in mind, in breath, all of these things, you know. And then I think, and I think you were describing this, when, when that happens, then slowly that worldview starts to shift. Or you, or th things appear differently, and we we find ourselves in a different world. Yes, that's 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 right, Stuart. And you know, it's it is habit, but we, before the habit is, we have to deeply desire to make that shift individually, actually. And this is again what is all over uh, Yeshua's teachings. Again, people had every reason to be depressed at his time. Uh, 
<laughs> almost since, because it was a smaller world for them, it was just probably just even more traumatic for them than it is for many of us today. But he was trying to teach them how to, you know, okay, strengthen that, that inner heart desire, as he talks about in his prayer. Uh, strengthen it by sort of doubling it, by connecting beyond yourself, not to to get out of your body, but to strengthen your heart's desire, your heart will, if you will, to change the reality around you. And this change that would happen in that, you could say in that way, in that vein, is what he calls Malkuta, or is usually translated kingdom, although it should really be queendom because it's a feminine gendered word in Aramaic. So, and again, this is another word that's all over his, all over his teachings. Yeah, could you could you talk a little more about the Malkuta? Because I, I was certainly struck by that because it, it shows up in uh, in the Kabbalah as uh, yes. the, as the kingdom Malkuth, the uh, yeah, the, yeah. the tenth Sephirot, and the um, uh, and you use the word I can a lot yes. for for that. Could you could you talk a little bit about this I canness? Well, first that there's an I there, <laughs> and and second that. You could say, when I tried to get a, a simple translation of it, this was even in my first book, that it seemed to be not only a quality of vision, the, vision meaning uh, not just perception, but you could say this imaginal realm we were talking of earlier, the vision of how things can be different, and the energy, personal energy, to to carry that forward, to go into that, to enact that, if you will. So it's not just the imaginal, but it's also the action that is tied to it, or the ability to act, if you will. Ability to act in time and space, in this reality, in these bodies, if you will. So, writ larger, uh, beyond the personal level, Yeshua is looking for that sort of arising or you could say reconnecting of the human spirit, the human breath or human ruha to source through its individual self. He's looking for that to empower or engender uh, a new reality, if you will. I mean, literally a new reality. And you could say, well, that was it. That was pie in the sky or this or that, or it never happens or, you know, but occasionally it does happen. Uh, and these things can happen. So one individual one individual making a stand, as we've seen, can often change uh, the reality around them. One individual even making a change can make a change in their family or their community, things like that. So this is these are examples of Malkuta. And uh, this is why he uses it so often. In many of his, almost all of his parables, he's speaking about this Malkuta. That is his, well, it's like that, and you know, it's like that. So... You know, the way he says, talk about the Malkuta Dashmaya or the Malkuta de Allah, Malku, the Malkuta of our interconnectedness with each other and with everything happens like this. Well, it, it happens like, you know, an insignificant plant uh, that grows somehow into, grows wild into this bush that, that overcomes its area and then, you know, birds take refuge underneath it or it's like, you know, a piece of yeast that leavens a piece of bread, or he goes on with all these different 
wonderful different story, short stories or likenesses, things like that. So is it, um, is, could we understand it as, uh, like the full integration of the, um, phenomenal and the non-phenomenal, the Ruah and the Nefesh, the everything come together in balance then, uh, expresses, is that, and that ex- Yes, I, th- I think it's pointing really back to, um, it, it is, it is both of those. Yes, Stuart. It, it's the, it's that bringing together with that heart, you could say greater heart desire power that he is speaking of. Uh, I believe it's really going back to personally, uh, to the divine image in which we are created in Genesis, in the biblical, in the so-called biblical tradition in that prophetic tradition out of which he comes, and such that we are given this potential. If you read, as I say, if you read the Garden of Eden story, uh, as the individuation of the, of the human self, the developing of human individuality, the ability to know good and evil, you know, what's that all about? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, it's about having preferences. You know, who is it? Which Zen master was it said? The, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. Well, you know, so this is when human, be- human beings, according to this beautiful story, really, if you read it without theology, develop the ability to have preferences. Uh, and so what comes along with that? Well, all sorts of s- stuff. All hell breaks loose, if you will. <laughs> if you look at the, you know, with the stories that follow. But, the gen- Genesis says, okay, the first human being we create as, as a self, as a living nefesh. nefesh. Nefesh being similar to the Aramaic word nafsha for the individual self. We create this held breath. And this one nefesh we create as male-female. That is, it's not two split. It's not two nefeshes. It's one as a, as a male-female intermingled sort of, can we use the word entity? I'd rather not get us into difficult philosophical territory. But, you know, as an individual self where a person can express a bit of this, they can express a bit of that, you know, and so the body comes out in a certain way, but each, indi- each human individual is male-female. That's what it says. And then that says that the potential of the hum- human being is as follows. And this is one of, as I, I harp on this a lot in a lot of my teaching, this is one of the most egregious examples of mistranslation, outright mistranslation, not just misinterpretation, in the whole history of translation, where if you go on it reads, it says in the King James Version, uh, be, be fruitful, multiply, dominate and subdue the earth and rule over and then it lists all the other beings who are created in the Genesis creation account. Well, the Hebrew doesn't say anything of the sort. I mean, literally, these are terrible translations. It says, yes, be fruitful. Okay, you'll multiply. Yeah, go figure, you know. (laughs) Um, Learn how to manage this nefeshness, this individual selfness. Learn how to manage that. That's what we're supposed to do. Learn how to manage your earthiness, if you will. Not the earth is planet earth, not the earth is nature. And then it says, where it says rule over, 
all these other creatures who are created before you, the Hebrew preposition says, rule with them, rule alongside them, rule within them. This Hebrew preposition, which is just the sound B, or the letter B, has never meant over in its whole history of the of Hebrew. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable, uh, actually. Actually, it's not unbelievable because the later the translators, by the time the King James version was done, and you know, imperialism and empire is all just starting to kick off, or is midway through kicking off. They couldn't imagine that it would say rule within all of nature or rule along with. Learn how to you know manage all of this within your natural self with all of nature, taking into account all of everything that's around you and everything that's within you. They couldn't imagine that. So then you have all these terrible, uh, you could say theological, political doctrines like, okay, go there and dominate these people because they're not using, they're not using the earth. You know, they're, not, they're not cultivating. You know, they're not agricultural. So you have free reign to just to steal their land and do whatever the hell you want with it. Because you'll be doing a better job than, right. according well, to, the, to their understanding. Right. You'll be following the Bible and you'll also be fulfilling your human, you could say your human selfish needs uh, for greed, right. which is not the, you want, you think you want greed outwardly. Actually, you want greed for your, your soul essence and you've misplaced that desire. Well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought up this whole issue of translation because, it, um, I mean, we touched on it a little bit earlier in the conversation, but I think one of the really interesting features of this book as a whole, is precisely the attitude to translation that you bring to understanding what what you're suggesting uh, Jesus or Yeshua actually said and what he actually meant. Um, so different, as you say, from, from in this particular case, you just used the uh, King James Version and translation. So, so... You know, we have a, uh, a a good friend Ken McLeod who um, yes. translates. Ken. Yeah, he's yeah. uh, a he's a dear friend wonderful. and yeah, wonderful man, a wonderful man, and and he too is obsessed with accurate translation. And so, um, what I guess I'm wondering is, um, did you develop your if you will, philosophy of translation, that is to bring um, the original understanding of not just words, not just individual, these individual things, but the entirety of the context within which the words were used, in this case, in, you know, uh, uh, first century um, common era, in its particular place, did you did you bring a philosophy to that? Did you did you speak to other translators? Did you um, uh, or did you develop this more or less uh, because you needed to to make this project work? You know, or or both. <laughs> it's, it's a bit of both, Rob. You know, I I began as I mentioned, sort of piecemeal, f feeling my way along. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps I was born with a suspicious nature, or I don't know, I probably may have developed it because my family was so countercultural. But, you know, as I said, I became an investigative reporter in my youth. 
And so I learned how to research things and find out things and look in the congressional record. This is before the Internet and develop sources in Washington, you know, who would tell me things they weren't supposed to tell me. And, you know, things like that. And <laughs> so and I wasn't afraid of finding out things. This is a, one of the <laughs> things you have to do. So when I when I came to really learn the Aramaic properly, I did my Ph.D. work in the hermeneutics of ancient Semitic languages. You know, mm. there's a word you pay five dollars for. Exactly. So, uh, you know, it's a bunch of phrase, but you know, it means the interpretation theory of ancient Semitic languages, which I argued, I think, successfully. Uh, you know, it must have been successfully. They gave me the doctorate. That you have to, you have to involve uh, not only the body as we as we know it today, sort of sort of a somatic approach, which is a mind body interlinked approach. But you also have to involve epistemology, a different way of knowing the world. And this was all about cosmology, really. Uh, when I came in contact with Matthew Fox, whom I mentioned earlier, I worked for Matt as, at his institute in Oakland for a number of years. And Matt encouraged me greatly in this direction. Some people who are listening to this will have heard the recent uh, video webcast I did with Matt on the on the book. And... You know, Matt said, you know, Neil, these dancing, this dancing is really nice. You know, I like it. It's body prayer. You know, your people are getting into it. And it says, but if what you're saying about the Aramaic is true, you know, you should really write a book about it. And I, I don't, I don't really want to do that. You know, but, you know, I'm done with writing. I've done all my writing. I did, people don't learn through, from writing. People, <laughs> people don't learn from words. I had sort of like thrown the, the baby out with the bathwater. And so Matt convinced me. And so I really began to go into it much, much more deeply. And, and he was a big inspiration in terms of cosmology. His book, mm -hmm. Original Blessing, uh, whom many people know, points out that if you view, let's say, this original sin motif, which is supposedly in the Bible and isn't, from the standpoint of, of early cosmology, it all looks... You know, the house, it's a house of cards that falls, that falls apart. So I, I really did sort of begin to build this, this greater sense of a cosmology at the time of Jesus bit by bit. And then certain, certain things do pull it together for me. Uh, ten years ago, or a little bit more, I did read Peter Kingsley's book, Reality, where he basically does the same thing with Empedocles and Parmenides, the pre-Socratics. And I thought, mm hmm. Peter's doing the sort of the same thing that I'm on about, and he's gotten a little bit further, actually. And so I, I began to internalize some of that. And where things really begin to switch on, I have to say, is really when I, when I start to tie together this notion of the evolution of consciousness, which is written about in a number of authors, that the human self right now as we're sitting here speaking today, is not the same as it was 2,000 or 10,000 or 100,000 years ago. It's not the same human self. And so nature was not viewed in the same way. The phenomena were not the same. The appearances, which is what phenomena means uh, in the, from the Greek, and because the appearances were different of nature each other, we treated each other, we handled nature differently, we were acting differently. And this is a sort of linchpin. This is, in some ways, an, an, something greater than cosmology, because it involves the fact that not only nature evolves, 
you know, like in a Darwinian sense or whatever, even <clears throat> they say sometimes Darwin was not as Darwinian as some of his followers, his, you could say secular followers, uh, but that the human self also evolves and changes over the centuries and particularly reaches sort of warp speed in the last 500 years. And I owe a lot of this to uh, when I began to read a British author who maybe few people have heard of, but maybe a few, who is a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, whose name is Owen Barfield. I'm doing a lot of name dropping because I know your book guys, uh, but Owen Barfield's books were an invaluable resource for me, although he comes from... He's very intrigued by the same issues I was, didn't have Semitic languages, uh, but he uses English to point, and the way English and Greek evolve, he had English and Greek, the way English and Greek evolve, even over the last, say, five, six, seven centuries in the different uses of words, or Latin too, he had Latin too. So uh, he argues from a linguistic basis, that yes, you can see how the human self evolves, and that in all these other languages, it's also the fact that the same word that originally, that, that now means, say, spirit, originally meant breath in Latin, in Greek, uh, even in English. The spirit was considered to be also part of our human breath, if you will, not something out there or something you have to go to a seminar to get. Uh, it's, it's, it, and so the human self is moves in a particular trajectory, and that presents challenges, problems, and also some opportunities, he points out. So uh, th this began to tie things for me, and I read Barfield like from A to Z, if you will, uh, and, and he, he helped me sort of inspire me, a, although he passed on in the 60s, he inspired me a lot to write this, this now bigger book, if you will, uh, about the Aramaic Jesus, because I saw, oh yeah, okay, well this, this, this is exactly what I found out, and this is the, you could say, the key that I was missing. So there was some philosophy that did inspire me, or mm -hmm. the various ones I've mentioned. Well, on the uh, on the topic of language, uh, and, and it's interesting that you mentioned. So you, you studied all the Semitic languages. Um, uh, I'm. I was interested in one of the things that I, I hadn't realized and I really appreciated as I saw these Aramaic words, I'd recognize some Sufi words or some, you know, it, it yes. seemed, it, it, I realized that the, the whole context and the whole uh, cosmological context of these people were, is what today I'm, you know, I might say, oh, this is like Sufi teaching or um, uh, yes. this is esoteric Christianity, or, but, but it was all kind of, more of a commonly available source at the same time most people were just struggling to survive so it's yes. kind of a an interesting kind of double-edged sword that there was there was a greater sense of connectivity yeah. with nature but not a lot of freedom in how you could express it or how you could no, realize that no there was very very little outer freedom if you will for most of jesus's listeners or even for most people in the ancient world uh what we now consider to be the usual norms for human freedom of action notice i emphasize freedom of action not freedom of inner life but freedom of action were were extremely restricted usually by circumstances, uh, that is shortages, things like that, but often by empires, 
because as as the human nafs as the human nefesh develops or nafsha as Jesus would call it the human self develops in this more individualized way empires become possible and power over or domination all this stuff becomes becomes much more much more possible it's um i i believe that yeshua sort of felt that this is coming and he comes at a sort of cusp where the human self is just really and he comes to a group of people where the human self is really particularly open. Uh, and we've mentioned the openness being almost equivalent to being traumatized in that way. Maybe they can get it that this is where they need to connect their, they need to connect to their human, their real human heritage. Their, you could say their divine image, as it's called. The image not me being a picture in Genesis, but it's a, you could say a moving representation in time and space form of reality. Uh, you, you need to realize that's your heritage. And, and I suppose he was, he was somewhat successful, uh, not in the long run, but we could say he was successful in the long run because we have these mystics in the Christian tradition popping up here and there and, you know, because they intuit. I mean, people like Meister Eckhart, you know, they, they intuit that this is what Jesus is all about. Uh, they don't know Aramaic, you know, but they know themselves. So in terms of the Sufi or these other things, yes, I point out in the footnotes where there are real resonances between Aramaic words, key Aramaic words that Jesus uses, and later words that uh, become very important words in Quran. As I've also taken the opportunity to study Quran quite deeply with a Quranic and Sufi master, uh, Sheikh Fadlallah Hayeri, and I've tested out some of this stuff, you could say, with him, because he says, well, you know, he tells me by my Sufi name, he says, well, Saadi, you know, what does what, what uh, Abrahamic tradition have to say about this passage in the Quran? I say, well, that he means in Hebrew or in Aramaic, and I say, well, in Aramaic, this equivalent is this, and this is, you know, this is the the bigger context, and and maybe that makes more sense here. If you read the Quran, then the usual tafsir, tafsir being what passes in Islam for theology, that is the usual way of reading the text. There's sort of a normative way of reading the Quranic text, which although theology is, is frowned upon, is basically a theology. So, uh, and you know, the mystics always go outside of this. So he's also encouraged me quite a bit in this regard. So uh, one of the things that um, intrigued me about the book was your discussion of the word peace and how how it gets um, how, what what Yeshua means by it when when he uh, uses it. So I'm wondering if if you could just provide a little summary. I mean, it's it's one of those words that in English it hasn't existed in English with the current meaning for that for a long time. And so I think this, um, because, because we are enjoined, um, in many religious traditions to, uh, cultivate peace, to seek peace, to value peace. Can you talk about it from Yeshua's uh, point of view? Uh, those are of course all very helpful values and I would never say anything against them. However, they're interpreted. Mm -hmm. 
in addition. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank, thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> That's why I'm here. But uh, no. <laughs> no, in, in addition, um, our, our sense of the word for peace is, again, like everything else, very much out here, out there-ness. It's the out there-ness of the peace. Mm-hmm. Now, people do talk about inner peace, so that's a good thing. Uh, again, for Yeshua's listeners, as well as for the Hebrew prophets, and even into the time of Islam, I should say even, because it's only 600 years later, this sense of peace derives not from the absence of war or from being the opposite of anything, but it it arises from an experience of beginningness. Okay, from the in the beginningness, if you will, whatever you want to call that, the beginning of, of everything, there was this, as Jesus would call it, shlama, or as it's called in Hebrew, shalom, or in Arabic, salam, basically all from the same root, slightly modified. Uh, actually, not modified at all. It's just that the Arabic alphabet changes a little bit from the Hebrew Aramaic. So the shlama is like the remembrance of the wholeness that is there, if you will, before the before, as some people have talked about, uh, the original face that the Zen masters talk about. This is this is peace that Jesus talks about. So not the absence of anything. And of course, this would bring inner peace, or could, should, for most people it does, um, and it could also bring them something greater than inner peace today. It could bring them a way of acting in the, in the outside world, if you will, uh, in an appropriate way. And that can be different for different people. Uh, that is, each person will have his or her own, his or their own way of approaching the challenges of everyday life. So it doesn't mean it's re- it's completely relative because Jesus is always pointing out to things should be in the moment. Things should be ripe for the moment. They should be appropriate for for everyone around you in the same way that nature is ripe when it's connected to everything around it in a ripe way, R-I-P-E, not right, R-I-G-H-T. So the, when, when, when a person would say shalom or shlama, you know, it means, okay, you know, relax. Remember, we weren't <laughs> here at one point. We weren't here in these bodies at one point. We won't be here again at another point. But life continues. And, and actually, according to the Semitic, ancient Semitic traditions, you know, something does carry on uh, from the unseen before to the unseen afterness. Uh, it doesn't all just sort of vanish. So we were having a conversation with a uh, non-dual teacher recently, and the distinction uh-huh. that, that was raised was, uh, uh, that we talked about, was a distinction between stillness and silence, where yes. you can have stillness, uh, you can have silence without stillness, uh, uh, and you can have stillness when it's not silent. And I, I, when I was reading about uh, uh, Shema, I, I kind of hit on that maybe that maybe stillness is a better way for me to relate to that because it's kind of it's the as you say beginningness. It's it's before anything. There's this. 
It's it's still yeah. I mean, you can go there if you. It's if it's a big stillness for you. I mean, still implies to some people be motionless. Uh, for instance, when I was told when I was a child going to church, I was told, "Okay, don't move." Yeah, be, be still. still. <laughs> no, because it says in the Bible, "Be still and know that I am God." Well, I looked it up in Hebrew, and it doesn't say be be motionless. It says be quiet, listen. <laughs> You know, but no one does that. So, you know, because that's not what prayer is about. Prayer is about talking to God and asking for stuff and praising God. But it's not about listening and getting something back. So um, ancient Semitic languages, big breath again for people, don't have words that mean to sit, sit still, be still, be motionless, or be in one place. This This isn't there at all. They only have, like, instead of, I, you wouldn't say, you wouldn't say, I am standing. You would say, I am coming to standing. That is, I'm in the process of coming to standing. Like the somatic psychologists talk about, we are feeling ourselves as we come to standing. And then there's a, a mo, there's a brief bit where we're motionless. And then there's further movement, even if it's small movement. But actually, for the ancient nomadic Semites, ancient nomads, you know, everything's always moving and changing. There isn't a static sense of self. There isn't a static sense of anything. And this is why you also do not have, you guys will like this, uh, you don't have being verbs in ancient Semitic languages. That is, you cannot actually say, I am. You cannot say, we are. Uh, you cannot say he, she, it is. This is, am, are-ness. That is, okay, I am Neil. That doesn't make any sense to an ancient Semitic speaker. You could say I'm called Neil, um, but I'm not Neil. I'm not a word, you know, and I'm not what I was 10 years ago, much less, you know, yesterday, really. If I'm, if I'm aware of my, you could say both sides of, of my being. Uh, so this is difficult for people to wrap their heads around because then they say, and we can go into this, of course, you know, well, what about all these I am statements? Or what about, you know, what does the burning bush say to Moses and stuff like that? So, Yeah, uh, I, I think you know, when you address those kinds of uh, formulations, you do explain them more from a process point of view that, that uh, it's, like, yes. it's more like, uh, oh, I mean, even, even the... Even the beginning of the uh, Lord's Prayer has that uh, uh, that dynamic sense. The way you translate it or the way you render it, I guess, is probably maybe a better word. Is yes, there's this hap this dynamic happening that's happening, and we're turning our attention to it. You know, it's not yeah. like this fixed fixed Father in heaven. It's uh, this this yeah. ongoing process of creation. Yeah, you know, when I did Prayers of the Cosmos 30-plus years ago, almost, I don't know how long ago it was, you know, I, I did this, O birth or father, mother of the cosmos, as the first line of the prayer. And uh, that was as far as I'd gotten. And now in the new book, I've corrected that, I would say, because it's really more like parenting. It's this process reality. If it's fathering and mothering, again, this dual intermingled sort of selfness, that is idealized, then it's a process. It's fathering, mothering, if you will, of the cosmos. So things are always in motion. Things are in change. Uh, creation is always happening. Creation is possible. 
uh, things are not fixed, done, over, cut and dry. So. So, so one thing I wanted to ask, you know, because we're talking about the Semitic languages um, and the and this function, is the function or the sensibility and even the ability to like translate down to the letter level something that's a feature of uh, Semitic languages in general with their consonantal structures and uh, their relationship with vowels, or is it more of a function of the way ancient languages were used because I, I, I use the contrast with like Sanskrit, which is a language mm-hmm. that comes up in a lot of sacred texts and yes. sans, Sanskrit decidedly has the verb to be in it in all its many um, conjugations. And yet a reading of Sanskrit has to go back to the roots and all the roots seem to be like uh, verbal roots that uh, from which nouns may form and verbs may form and, and conjugations and declensions may color, but it's still these yes. roots. And it has a, a similar feel to this, uh, the way you describe letters in a Semitic language as having this kind of livingness and uh, yeah, as a, the Kabbalah would say, a formulaic kind of mm-hmm. composition that gives rise to a greater reality. Yeah, that's, that's, I think that's exactly right. I'm, you know, I'd, I'd say it's part in terms of the Semitic language, it's part partly about the roots, but the roots enable uh, people to articulate, to speak into their reality, their outer reality, this greater, this sense of human consciousness as embedded in within what is with, around us, which is in process. And so we're in process, we're in motion, we're in the sense of change. Th- this is, it's really the cosmology, the epistemology, that is the way of knowing, and then this sort of where human consciousness is. I, I would only say that probably, and this is speculation on my part, probably the Eastern traditions or out of which Sanskrit comes, they probably uh, reached agriculture earlier than the ancient Semites did. Uh, they were probably nomadic for longer than, uh, that, than may have happened in Asia. So, this is why this this would be the only difference. But the the individual letter sounds, if you will, were not simply a squiggles written on a page. As I said, as I was indicating when I spoke about uh, nafsha and rucha, Jesus's two words for self and soul, these are really these are sounds, experiences of the breath in the body that then allow them to articulate to speak into existence to name phenomena as they felt around them. That is, the way they, the way things appear to them were expressed in these early words. So, hence, again, back to Genesis, God speaks the universe into existence in Genesis in Hebrew. If you look at the Hebrew, as I have, you know, every time it says, and God said, let there be blah, 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 the word for say is a little bit different. And they all have to do with not just, okay, he, there were thought bubbles and God, you know, says, okay, this is, and then, and then it happens. No, it's, these are like energies that are engraved into reality. In fact, one of the words for say means to engrave. Another word means to sort of like radiate bundles of light into reality. Hmm. All of this. So you could say, you know, things that we now, you have to go to quantum metaphors, quantum physics metaphors to sort of tie together. But uh, this is why I believe that, 
you know, the, the letter sounds evolve in this way too, that it's all about relationship, if you will, inner, outer connection. And then later, as I've pointed out in my book, I think it's probably not able to be argued with, people speak language first uh, with this relationship aspect, creating phenomena around them with words, if you will. And then later, grammar comes in and tries to, okay, this is it. You know, we're not going to change the language anymore, that's it. So grammar comes in at a much later stage in the development of human language, certainly in Semitic languages. This is arguably true. Uh, even in the case of Prophet Muhammad, the, the Quran in which he speaks the language, the Quran in which the language comes through him, if you will, uh, does not yet have a fixed grammar. It does not at that point, no matter what Muslim scholars, some Muslim scholars say. That only happens two, three hundred years after his time, and the grammar fixes the meanings in a way that is, again, akin to theology. And, Interesting. And is developed, guess what, in, a, in the period of, of empire, hmm. yeah. uh, which is another whole story that, you know, unfolds there. But, and there's one other point I, I think with this conversation about language it struck me that uh, I appreciated your kind of pragmatism about I, th I think it shows up in one of your appendixes but uh, it, it's a comment about people writing to you asking asking uh, for a phrase to be translated into Ar Aramaic for them and, and you kind of say it's not magical it's not a magic language and uh, and I think I'm sensitive to this because, uh, you know, so often we'll encounter folks in um, Hindic traditions, that, uh, especially Westerners, who want to impose on Sanskrit this, like, it's it's the fundamental language. It's you know, every, every sound. It's, this is the, base, the basic sounds right. of, of human reality, right. et cetera. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and what you emphasize here, getting back to uh, the Aramaic Jesus, is... It's not it's not the language per se, but the, the 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 power of the approach that you have is that you're if you can connect with the person who's speaking the language by understanding the language and inhabiting the language and inhabiting the universe of that language, that you can come into closer relationship with the speaker. And hence, you know, the the logic for the project makes perfect sense that you can yeah. come, come closer to Jesus by interpreting and understanding what he's saying in the language that he used in the language that he used embodied. Yes. Yes. Very much. You know, take it, take it into your belly, right. you know, let it be digested there, you know, into the deeper heart as the Semitic languages would call it, you know, into your solar plexus and, you know, let it, let it live there. And then, and then hopefully that helps you reconnect to something greater. I, I think that's that's extremely important. I mean, I was a little bit leery of using. I mean, I often tell people, yeah, it's not magic, you know. That, but on the other hand, magical what we net, what we today call magical things do happen. But just like the word miracle. Uh, they can be understood as the way humanity saw just about everything <laughs> in the times before we lived under the illusion that we could a control our food supply and b 
uh, hoard more than we needed individually <laughs> uh, for a particular day. So, you know, this is a big, big shift of of consciousness. So, yeah, I, I do still get these these emails and and things like that. I expect I always will. And in some cases, if it, if it is a word that Jesus uh, used, I'll say, well, yeah, it's this word. You know, you can find it on this, such and such a page and <laughs> in my one of my but in one of my books. But you know, in many in many cases, it's a later word that isn't even around at the time of Jesus because it already indicates that inner outer split. Mm. Oh, that's you know, interesting. It's yeah. a word that we've we've used as a band aid or a plaster, using UK English, to sort of try to plaster over all these splits that we've inculcated into our worldview uh, because of the way our humanity has developed in the, since the scientific revolution. Well, one of the points that you, I mean, you, several times you've you've um, uh, you've pointed to the um, connection of imperialist. Uh, enterprises to how to how people are are understanding values and and even you know words themselves, but it's but one of the things you also bring up in the book, which which I appreciated because I I've seen it before, um, is is the everyday relationships. So when you were talking about the condition of people in you know. Uh, uh, the Levant in in uh, uh, the first century, there are relationships of of patriarchal domination at the most basic level. Yes, you you, you refer to the fact that that um, in many cases people are forced into a relationship with a so called patron, uh, the Latin word, um, which um, by which people had to call their patron father. Yes. And, and, and just, uh, you know, the, the ramifications of what that means with relation to the previous understanding of, of, the, of the word for father are, are immense. Yeah. I mean, Jesus says, you know, quite clearly, don't call anyone father, <laughs> except for that reality, right. fathering, mothering from which you come. Right, and right. so that was both a political and a, in our terms today, a political and a spiritual a revolutionary statement. Just that enough would have been enough to get him, you know, <laughs> crucified. Uh, so, uh, yeah, no, it was very much a, a patronage-based society. We still find that in many wor places in the world today, uh, yes. even so-called modern politics, <laughs> mm -hmm. particularly in <laughs> our own countries, uh, uh, so-called Western democracies, you find this, well, you know, if you're part of the inner club, you know, you know, you do me a favor, I do a favor. If I get in power, then you get this position and, and on and on and on. And, you know, people think that's somehow different from the mafia, which it isn't really. Uh, but I mean, the, and, I, and I'm, I'm using these terms to sort of shock people. But, well, this was the social structure for much longer than Western democracy was. You had family and, you know, you helped your family. And then you had to define who's the family, you know, who's in and who's out. Right. This is why you have so many modern spiritual groups talking about themselves as a family. And sometimes that's helpful. And many times it's not at all helpful because it's the same sort of patronage system. Well, if you do this for me or overlook that, you know, then you'll get this position or that or whatever. So the, these sorts of things, 
you know, go on. We just have to take them as, as the way the human self has evolved over time and then make the change, make the turn, uh, make the turn in our own lives and then hopefully begin to help others make it uh, by our own example. And perhaps by taking action in a way that we would never have foreseen if we hadn't touched the deeper aspect of our, of our soul self, which allows us to imagine this newer uh, reality, one more, as Jesus would call it, more in balance would be the best word. He uses the word chanuta in one of the Beatitudes. It's this inner connection of, you could say, of inner honesty. I would translate, it's hard to translate as one word. It's an inner honesty and an outer justice. Mm-hmm. Inner honesty, outer justice, like honesty, meaning like, okay, really honest with where I am and my own limitations and what I'm projecting onto others. And then when I become clear about that, then I will be more just with those around me. Yeah. And so, you know, and we're, we're looking for that sort of shift in culture uh, big time. Well, that's, and one of the things that you point out, which um, you're not original in pointing out, but it, but it takes on a different meaning within the context that you present in the book about how uh, uh, Yeshua, Jesus would have, would have understood what he, what he was saying. And and that is the point about, uh, you say that in, in the Hebrew, um, uh, texts a prophet does not love his followers but jesus loves his followers and and makes a virtue of that and that's a really i mean i i've seen that written before um that that jesus is doing something original here but i'd like i'd like you to to um talk about that for our listeners uh for a moment because it strikes me as well, it's obviously still relevant, number one. Yes. And, and, uh, but it also emerged as this new thing with him. Yes. It seems, that seems to be something that he was bringing into human consciousness in a big way. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the Hebrew prophets, uh, they're really more like shaman. Hmm. The Hebrew prophet is like a shaman. Yeah. That is, he's like a, and again, excuse the way I'm using these terms. He travels into other realities. He brings back things that will help people, messages. Mm-hmm. Uh, he may have a successor or he may not have. And he undergoes quite a- extreme austerities uh, on his own, mm-hmm. fasting, this and that, who knows what else they did. And so has quite an extreme life and lifestyle. Uh, Look at Job. I mean, my God, <laughs> you know, or, or read, if you want to read an interesting book, you've probably read it, read book, Jung's answer to Job, which I think recreates some of this quite nicely in a certain way. The extreme uh, contradictions that these Hebrew prophets would have felt within them uh, mm-hmm. to, to try to resolve uh, this inner outer, you know, it's like, Gosh, we're just sort of getting used to having a self here and, and it's getting more selfie and, and how do we stay open? And, and so we can't all do it. And so these, these prophets are going to help us do that. Well, in addition to making the heart more the focus of his teaching, 
uh, Lebha, as Jesus calls it in Aramaic, uh, he also shows us, okay, a big feature of using your heart is to, as he says, love one another. Uh, love those that are close to you in a deeper way. Love them not just from your personal, perhaps selfish, veiled, occluded love, but love them in a bigger way. And he uses this bigger word for love also in the uh, toward the end of John's Gospels in this lovely, this beautiful farewell talk he has with his students that I include as a, as a large part of the book, toward the end of the book, how he's transmitting, trying to transmit things to them. You know, we talk about spiritual transmission today and the different way different, you know, different teachers have transmitted to their students. He, Yeshua, tries to transmit in words, certainly we have the evidence of the words, in actions, and then in something that is in with all of those, his breath, uh, that which cannot be communicated in concepts. So he uses stories, likenesses, uh, the embeddedness, for instance, of the vine, this whole mm. vine and branches saying, which he uses as, I think, uh, the, I think it's the last of these so-called I am say statements. And again, we alluded to it before, he's really saying, I, I, if you connect your inner self, that is your inner sense of self in the deepest way to its source, then, you know, you will, you will, you will know which way to go in life. You will, you will have the energy to travel that way. Uh, you will see the path ahead of you. That's basically a brief gloss on I am the way, the truth, and the life. Connecting I, I, real self, you could say, small self to bigger self, this is your way. Then at the end he talks about this is, okay, this I-I, it is my connection I-I, which is transmitting to you, if you will, I'm connected from that place. So don't worry about me going, don't worry about me not being here in the body. And you are the ones that are the you, and again, it's not you are either, he says, but I have to use R. You are receiving this like a grafted stock into a parent vine. So I am that, that parent that is supporting the new growth. And I'm going to support you with this flow of the juice of the transmission until you're ready to be your own you know, be your own grapevine. There you go. There's an affirmation for you. So, because, it, you know, that's how grafts took, and grafts were around in the ancient world, and they were used in ancient vineyards. People had knowledge of that. So he uses this very much, and this is why he says, abide in me and I in you. He says, okay, if you rest in this inner transmission that you've gotten from me, you'll feel me there. You know, you won't feel me in the body, but you'll feel my sense of self helping you, and then you will grow into your own. You will bear your own fruit. And here's where he again says at the end of John, those who come after me will bear fruit. They'll do the same work that I have done and greater, even greater than these things. That was his vision. That was his hope anyway. 
That's that's very beautifully uh, summarized, um, and and you're right. It, it, it's a substantial part of the book, um, and I'm glad in this conversation you actually made the point about how people in the in in that time would have understood grafting, because that actually elucidates very clearly this metaphor, the this extended metaphor that that that. Yes. Uh, that he's using in uh, the Gospel of John or, or is being used in the Gospel of John. Yeah. So, thank you. Yeah, he uses a lot of planting images, mostly nature images. Yeah. And then other very, you could say, sometimes unusual or common images. Uh, also in the Gospel of Thomas, which I bring in large bits of uh, mm -hmm. in the last part of the book in relation to the Gospel of John, uh, because uh, basically from what we know from uh reasonable historical research, not the uh, <laughs> not the unreasonable ones in my book, but that the Thomas communities and the John communities knew one another when they were remembering things, they remembered different things, but they weren't that different. Mm -hmm. They were not that different if you look at them through an Aramaic lens. Got it. Yeah, so that's, that's really important. And he, you know, he's he alludes to things. Why does he use stories? Why does he use pictures or striking images? Well, you know, they're like teaching stories or koans or, you know, they, they are like this. But, you know, he was there. Well, I don't gosh, I don't remember when the sixth patriarch is. But uh, anyway, maybe maybe they were already, these sort of things were already known in the ancient world. So it, it's very likely. But he, he uses these methodologies to elude you could say the, the conceptual mind, which is just beginning to develop this thing about, you know, belief, belief, yeah. I have to believe certain thoughts, I have to believe certain concepts, it's only going to be this way, only this way, only this way. So I often want as one of the first things I point out to people is that Jesus never asked anyone to believe in him. That's again, a mistranslation, or I could say a vast misinterpretation of of the preposition. He says, believe within me. Have and this, trust. And believe means have trust, not believe a concept. Have yeah. trust in this reality. Uh, and, and believe with, with, along with, and within me. Do it, you know, if you want to, if you want some help, do it like I do, and then you'll do it your own way. Well, that's yeah. a, uh, a, a good way to uh, start to uh, bring this uh, conversation to a close. Um, yeah, the, it it is a remarkable book. Uh, it it's a real contribution. There's, yeah, there's it, no it, doubt. It. I, I, I gained Thank a lot you, out guys. of it. Actually, it, it, you, it, will, it will resonate with me for quite a while. Um, uh, so it is officially published beginning of October, right? Yeah, I think some people have already received it. They've told me, and uh, okay. Well, that's that's the way the that's the way the publishing world works, yeah. really. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it won't be in the UK or the rest of the world for a little bit in the English, and we'll see about the foreign editions. So, um, yeah. So you know, run out and buy ten of them. <laughs> <laughs> and give them well. to your friends and the <laughs> people who have questions. There's a certain bookstore in Sebastopol. That's know. right. Yeah, yes, there we go. And uh, I, I hope to visit you again when I'm there again. So, oh, please do. Yeah, we, please we, do. Let we, us we know. Would love we, we would you, love uh, to have you come. I hope really. to be there over. You know, just around Easter again next year. So, oh, oh good. Well, say, uh, if the universe cooperates, I will be there.
That, well, that would be great. Well, then, I, let's definitely. Um, I'll, I'll invite you to my 70th birthday party the week after. He's fabulous. <laughs> Accepted. Okay. Right. Well, Neil, it was uh, wonderful to uh, uh, both read this book and to talk to you about it. And uh, we very much appreciate the work that you're doing. It's, yes. Uh, Thank uh, you. I, I appreciate you you both too, Rob and Stuart. And, and the fact that you're, uh, how can I put it? You're not afraid of using the mind in a proper way. <laughs> because there is a proper way to use there, the mind. There is a proper you know, way. My final sermon would be a lot of spiritual groups to say, no, we don't want any thoughts. We don't want any ideas. We just want experience. Well, experience is also relative. I mean, people have all sorts of experiences which may be completely counter to what's going on around them. God. <laughs> God didn't. God didn't make a mistake creating the human mind. Let's put no. it that way. Uh, it's not. The, it's not the greatest thing in the world, but it's what we have, and and we right. can use it properly exactly. with heart. Yes, with heart. With, with heart. All right. Absolutely. Well, that's that's a great place to end. Thanks. <laughs> thanks so much, Neil. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Same to you. You have been listening to the Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Neil Douglas Klotz about his latest book, Revelations of the Aramaic Jesus, The Hidden Teachings on Life and Death, published by Hampton Roads. Neil Douglas Klotz, Ph.D., is a renowned writer in the fields of Middle Eastern spirituality and the translation and interpretation of the ancient Semitic languages of Hebrew, Aramaic, and Arabic. He was, for many years, the co-chair of the Mysticism Group of the American Academy of Religion. He currently lives in Scotland. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com, as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com, and join us again next Saturday.